Let's begin in prayer. It's good to be here this morning. Let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of uh, Sunday school. We pray that you would continue to build us up in Jesus Christ. Give us understanding, wisdom, and grace. Conform us to the likeness of Christ. Prepare our hearts even now for worship on your day that has been set aside, that we might rest from our labors and worship our triune God in union and communion with Christ and one another in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have 45 minutes to cover an entire book in basic summary overview. Uh, The Plan of Salvation is a book that Warfield wrote to outline differing views of how people are saved and on what basis they are saved, and it covers the history of Christian doctrine. And if I had a whiteboard up, I would put a big taxonomic chart up, but you're going to have to use your imagination just a little bit with me this morning. Uh, He begins by making the most fundamental distinction that you can make when it comes to understanding the, the doctrine of salvation. He distinguishes naturalism from supernaturalism. Naturalism from supernaturalism. Now I'm going to start with supernaturalism, which is what you and I believe. Supernaturalism teaches that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ. According to supernaturalism, God has ordained the salvation of his people from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. According to supernaturalism, Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation once and for all in his death and resurrection, Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. And according to supernaturalism, God sovereignly applies the salvation purposed in all eternity, accomplished in calendar time, to his people as the spirit of Jesus Christ unites them to Christ through spirit-gifted faith. We've talked about that at the conference. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. By grace you are saved through faith, this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works lest you boast. And so God plans, God executes, and God applies salvation in Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. That's basic Christian theology. It's supernaturalism, and we rejoice in that. Now, standing over against this, Warfield says, is a view called naturalism. Naturalism. And the first and most famous version of this is called Pelagianism. Pelagianism. It's a fourth century heresy. It was developed by a monk named Pelagius, and it advocated this central premise. Listen to this. The commandment for sinners to obey God and believe the gospel assumes they have the natural residual ability to do so without any assisting grace. To put it more simply, Pelagius said sinners can obey God and believe the gospel without any supernatural grace given to them at all. They have native, natural resources to do all that God commands after Adam's fall 
into sin. And Warfield has some quotes that I would read to you if we had a little bit more time. But his point is that naturalism stands opposed to supernaturalism in that supernaturalism says you are saved by grace from beginning to end. And the naturalist says that you need no grace in order to do all that is pleasing to God. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration, and I do this uh, when I teach on this. I don't want to upset anyone if it's one of your favorite movies. Back when I was 30, I did this, and I got a guy in an Orthodox Presbyterian church so upset that if I didn't weigh 100 pounds more than he did, I think he would have just come to blows with me. But So this is just an illustration, okay? But have you seen The Wizard of Oz? Remember that one? One of my all-time favorites. My mom used to let me stay up past 9 o'clock to see that when I was young. It was very rare. And do you remember when um, the movie begins, Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Lion are off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Why? Because he has resources outside of themselves that they need. What does the lion need? Courage, right? What, what does the scarecrow need? He needs a brain. What does the tin man need? He needs a heart. And they're told the whole movie that they have to go to the wizard because the wizard will graciously confer these gifts upon them. So the whole movie they're going to get there, and when they get there, Toto sees a leg behind a screen when the foundations of the place are shaking and the wizard is speaking with this thunderous voice, goes and he starts pulling the leg of this guy and he pulls him out. And lo and behold, the wizard was just the projection of a man trying to control people and telling them that they needed external assistance and help. But what was the story at the end? What was the what 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 did the lion and the scarecrow and the ten men learn? You had it all along. You didn't need to look outside of yourself. You didn't need a gracious gift. You didn't need any assistance. The lion always had the courage. And the scarecrow always had the brain. And the tin man always had the heart. Brothers and sisters, that's called Pelagianism. That's called naturalism. There are two other versions of it. I'm going to just tell you them briefly. 16th century Socinianism, 20th century liberalism. And J. Gresson Machen wrote a book amplifying Warfield's point, and it's 100 years old this year. It was entitled Christianity and Liberalism. Liberalism denied the need for grace to do what is pleasing to God. Liberalism denied that Jesus made a substitutionary atonement for sin. Liberalism denied bodily resurrection and the need for this supernatural grace of God in order for sinners to be saved. And for that reason, liberalism, according to Machen, is a different religion. And so if you're asking the question, where is the antithesis between Christianity and what is not Christianity, it's that Christianity is supernaturalistic. The triune God ordains, accomplishes, and applies salvation, and naturalism says you don't need grace outside of yourself. You have all the resources naturally, just like the lion, the scarecrow, and the tin man. But Warfield moves on. 
And he says, among supernaturalists, there's a fundamental debate, a fundamental breach in the history of doctrinal development. And it occurred at the time of the Protestant Reformation. One species on one side of supernaturalism, Warfield calls sacerdotalism. Multisyllabic word, it's one of those high dollar words that those theologians always are prone to use. Sacerdotalism, by and large with Warfield's rendering, is traditional Roman Catholicism. Traditional Roman Catholicism teaches that salvation comes, now please hear this, exclusively through the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Grace is automatically and irresistibly infused through the sacraments. So Rome says traditional, tridentine, 16th century Roman Catholicism says that there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church because only the Roman Catholic sacraments infuse grace. And the technical term that Warfield uses and the Roman Catholic Church has used to explain this phenomenon is sacraments, the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church infuse grace ex opere operato. Ex opere, O-P-E-R-E, operato, O-P-E-R-A-T-O. And it means literally, by the work being worked, by the sacrament being administered, get this, grace is automatically and irresistibly infused regardless of faith. That's why people can live like children of hell six days a week and then go get an infusion of grace, a fresh infusion of grace in the Mass. Now, my co-favorite professor at Westminster, California, was Robert Strimple. I mentioned him in the conference series, uh, and uh, Meredith Klein was my other. And he had a wonderful illustration of how Roman Catholic sacerdotalism works. Do you guys have 7-Elevens out here? There aren't any tootin' totems, are there? That's a Texas thing. Okay. Go into your local 7-Eleven. In another two weeks, it's probably going to be 100 degrees. I'm thankful I missed that. And if you get, if you, if you, if you have my taste, you're going to want an ice cold Dr. Pepper. 23 flavors. Vastly superior to Coca-Cola and, and Pepsi. Um, and, and you're going to get probably a 44 ounce cup. If that's the largest they have, it's going to be a really hot day. And you're going to fill it with ice. And then you're going to look. You're going to pass up the Mountain Dew, the Coca-Cola, the Pepsi, the Diet Coke. I don't understand that one. Fanta might be tempting. There's Dr. Pepper. And you're going to see a little lever that's aluminum, typically. And if you put your drink on that lever and you move that lever, you get Dr. Pepper ex opera operato. By the lever being moved, whether you believe it's going to happen or not, crisp, bubbly, 
refreshing Dr. Pepper will cascade down your cup and fill it to the top. You didn't know that Dr. Pepper was in some way Roman Catholic, right? It's, 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 but that's, that's a great illustration. Ex opere operato. That's how grace is infused. Now, the Protestant Reformation, what we'll call Protestantism over against sacerdotalism. Warfield calls it evangelicalism. We need to use Protestantism for about 10 reasons I could give you, but I won't. Protestantism is a better way to speak. Protestants looked at that and said, that's not right. It is not right to say that the sacraments infuse grace automatically because it makes, it makes grace, listen, something controlled by the church. And they said, that's not right. And so over against this sacerdotalism, Warfield puts it this way. He says, the question which is raised in sacerdotalism is whether it is God the Lord who saves us or it is men acting in the name of the Lord and clothed with the powers of God to whom we are to look for salvation. This is the issue which divides sacerdotalism and evangelical religion. Is it the Lord who saves us sovereignly? Or is it to men acting in the name of God who possess the grace of God in the sacraments to whom we look? This is a big deal. This is an incredibly important distinction. And if you want an illustration, well, before the illustration, Protestantism affirms this, that God sovereignly and freely works through means to save sinners. Sovereignly and freely works through the preached gospel to save sinners when and where he so desires. And Warfield uses and appeals to a number of texts, but one text that I think is most useful, and if you want your, to have your Bible open for this one, you can. John 3, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to comment on the, the key points. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, he tells him, I know that you are a teacher from God. No one can do what you do unless he's sent from God. And Jesus responds with a twofold statement to him. That you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. Three, five, you must be born of water and spirit to see the kingdom of God. Seeing and entering are images uh, metaphors for faith. For you to see and enter the kingdom of God by faith, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, who was one of the most famous and accomplished theologians of Israel at the time, just stands there scratching his head and says, what, what are you talking about? Can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus, with perfect, even infinite patience, says to Nicodemus, let me give you this statement. Do not be confused. Flesh gives birth 
to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. And he's, he's alluding through 3.5 down to 3.7 to, to Ezekiel 36, 35 through 37, where God says this, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and make you walk in my statutes. And then the illustration in the next chapter is this. God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to a valley of dry bones, including the whole house of Israel. And I believe prophetically that includes the whole Israel of God from the old to the new covenant. And as Ezekiel prophesies, the spirit, what? Through the gospel, through the prophetic gospel, goes forth, breathes new life onto the bones, and they begin to move. They begin to be formed with sinew. Breath enters them, and they rise up as a mighty army alive to God. Through what? the sovereign working of the Spirit through the proclaimed gospel of the prophets. Jesus, not stopping there. See, Nicodemus would know that. Nicodemus was a very well-trained Old Testament theologian. He'd know that instantly. So that went right through his head. But Jesus said, let me give you another illustration. This is the patience of the Lord teaching. He says, it's like new birth is like the blowing of the wind. You don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That text cannot possibly teach sacerdotalism. Because for sacerdotalists, you know exactly when and where grace is given, because it's mechanical and it's automatic. When you move the lever, you get the Dr. Pepper. Every time, assuming the equipment's working. But Jesus is saying it's not like that at all. Why? Because here's the key. Listen, this is what Protestantism is all about. God saves sovereignly and freely through the gospel and through the means he has ordained. It's a sovereign, free act of God. That, Warfield says, is the fundamental difference between sacerdotalism, and Protestantism. And so what is the critique of Roman Catholicism? At least here, there are many others. Well, we can say this, that the Roman Catholic Church is not being consistently supernatural when it comes to the free, saving, sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ, made known through the gospel. Now, there are many other things to say critiquing Roman Catholicism, but that tells us that we are what? Supernaturalistic Protestants, not semi-supernatural Roman Catholics. We look to the Lord, not men, for salvation. The Lord sovereignly working, not men automatically dispensing grace through sacrament. Now, there's another distinction. This one's going to sound most familiar to you. The first two, first one was pretty intuitive, I suspect. 
The second one, you probably hadn't quite heard it put that way. Maybe you have. Third one is going to get right into what you are neck deep in in Oklahoma City. The distinction, third distinction, between universalism and particularism. Now, I've got to do something because I know what you're thinking when I talk about universalism. You're thinking, that is the doctrine that everyone is saved, and particularism is the doctrine that only a few are saved. Well, in some quarters, that's a great way of dividing that difference, of making that distinction between universalism and particularism. That's not how Warfield's using the word universalism here. And this can throw you. Consider this kind of like a primer on reading the book if you if you buy the uh, the book as it escalates in its co- uh, price right now as, as we're speaking. Um, he, here's how Warfield defines universalism. According to universalism, now listen to this, the reason why some people are saved and some people are lost lies entirely within the sinner, not God. Why are there some who are saved and some who are lost? Who makes that ultimate discriminating decision according to universalism? The ultimate discriminating decision for who is saved and lost lies in the sinner, not in God. All of God's saving operations for the universalist make salvation possible pending your cooperation with the overtures of non-saving grace. Grace makes salvation possible. The question is, will you cooperate with it? Now, he has three versions of universalism in the book due to time constraints and due to a couple of technical details. I can't, I don't have time to tell you about the, 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 all three, but I can give you the main one that I know you're familiar with because it is the prevalent form of Protestantism in your region by a mile. It's called remonstrant Arminianism. Universalism, probably in terms of its most numerically dominant expression is remonstrant Arminianism. And I can't give you the full history of remonstrant Arminianism, but I want to give you in Philip Schaff's Creeds of Christendom a brief summary of the view when it comes to free will and election. I'm going to read the summary to you and then expound it. This is remonstrant Arminianism. Uh, roughly 1610, there were Arminians, uh, or there was an Arminian, Arminianism followed him, at the Synod of Dort, James Arminius, who protested or remonstrated against the canons of Dort and against the Calvinism that was being taught. Article 1. Here's the statement from Chaff. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, 
Man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. Each sinner possesses a free will, which is the moral ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. The sinner has the power either to cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or resist God's grace and perish. So, after the fall, it's not true there is no one good. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. All have become corrupt. It is not true that the natural man does not and cannot submit to God's law. Not according to Remonstrant Arminianism. The sinner is weakened by sin, but not dead in sin. Still has the moral ability either to cooperate with non-saving grace and then be saved, or to resist it and be lost. Conditional election follows from this. Conditional election. Quote, Election is therefore conditioned on God's foreknowledge of those who will freely cooperate with prevenient or non-saving grace and be saved. So let me explain election to you. From, I'll do it from up here and point this way, just because so we're all facing the same way. Let's assume right here from, from this pulpit back is the eternity past of God. God dwells in eternity, Isaiah 57, 15. He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. As God is looking down the corridor of time, the time that he will create and the time that he will populate with image bearers, he looks upon the whole mass of humanity and he sees those who, by their freedom, after the fall, will cooperate with his prevenient, non-saving grace, believe the gospel, and be saved. And on the basis of that foreseen faith, he elects them to eternal salvation. Those he foresees not Responding, foreknows not believing, he judges unto condemnation. Those who use their freedom to cooperate with God's grace are elected on that condition, on that basis. When viewed from the perspective of predestination then, we could say something like this, that God loves those he knows will first love him. He chooses those he knows will first choose him. His choice, listen, please get this, is conditioned by and determined by your choice. And that is traditional 16th century remonstrant Arminianism. Over against that view is a view that Warfield calls particularism. 
particularism. Its primary proponents today are known as Calvinists or those who are confessionally reformed according to the scriptures. And on this view, on the view of particularism or Calvinism, the reason why some are saved and some are lost, the ultimate consideration does not lie in man, but in God. It is God who sovereignly determines those who will be saved and those who will be lost. It is God's choice that ultimately discriminates between the saved and the lost. And the particularist not only believes that it is God's choice that discriminates between the saved and the lost, but that God's choice to save sinners, listen, is unconditional in this sense that it is not based on or determined by any foreseen response in the one saved. It is unconditional love, unconditional election, not conditional love, not conditional election. And there are particularly two texts that I'd like to call your attention to, to which the particularists appeal, and there are many others. When do I end? 10.30? Yeah, okay. There's one text in particular um, <clears throat> that the particularists appeal to, and I want to take, it, take you to it uh, uh, now. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 speaks of one example of election within the covenant community, Jacob and Esau, and one example of election or reprobation outside of the covenant community in Pharaoh. And in the case of Jacob and Esau, Paul says in Romans 9.10 that Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, though they had done nothing either good or evil, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The point is this, that God did not take into account the works of either Jacob or Esau as he elected Jacob unto salvation. In fact, if I had time, I would show you that Jacob, up until the time point Esau denied his birthright, was worse than then Esau, Jacob was horrible. He came out grasping his brother's heel like the serpent. He was a deceiver and a liar. In fact, you can say this, there was nothing in his life God could see as compliant, as virtuous, 
as a basis on which he could be elected. So he was told, Jacob, we are told, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say to this? Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now here's your target verse. If you highlight your Bible, if you mark, mark it, mark it, because this is, this is a, a critical one. So it, what? Election. God's sovereign election depends not on human will or exertion, but God who has mercy. The universalist says the reason for the difference between Jacob and Esau depends on Jacob and Esau, on their freedom, on their will. Paul says it does not. It rather depends on God. The reason for the differentiation between Jacob and Esau depends ultimately on God who shows mercy. I could use Pharaoh as an example, but I have two things I'd like to say by way of encouragement and reminder. First, this doctrine is of foundational importance to your personal piety in the Lord. If what remonstrant Arminianism teaches is true, and it's not, but if it were true, the reason why God loves you resides in a virtue you possess that those who are lost do not. You have that special virtuous quality that when you heard the gospel of your own free will, you cooperated with prevenient non-saving grace and you were saved. But the poor people driving down the street right now who are not going to church lack that virtue. They lack that special virtue you have and on the basis of which God elected you. And I want you to know all that does deep down inside is foment pride. That's all it does. Now, are all Arminians proud? No, I, I know some Arminians who are humble, God-honoring people, but it's in spite of what they believe, not because of it. Because if you believe that God loves you because you're special and he doesn't love other people because they're not special, it will show in the way that you walk and talk and speak to people. But if God chose you in spite of your lack of merit, in spite of your lack of virtue, if God saw you as a sinner dead in sin, hating him, unable to submit to him, Romans 8, 7, and 8, and he elected you unconditionally in Christ, that puts you in your properly creaturely place of worshiping a God of sovereign grace. It puts us properly before God as the potter and the clay. And it makes you wonder and worship at the unconditional love 
that has made you a guest at what will be the Lord's table soon. It's true piety. It builds true piety. And I want to say this uh, by way of, of an additional application. This is what defines reformed, Calvinist, particularist religion. This is what sets us off in distinction, now to use the taxonomy, from the universalists like the uh, Remonstrant Arminians, the Wesleyan Arminians, the post-Reformation Lutherans fit in this category. It sets us off from traditional Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And I want to just make this comment. I don't know how well I'll be able to communicate this in the time I've got. But your fundamental identity as a Christian is tied to the church of Jesus Christ. You are members of a church that believes in particularism. You are members of a body that confesses supernaturalistic Protestant Calvinism. Reformed according to the scriptures. And you are first and foremost called to serve and promote that ecclesial expression of Calvinism, to understand that you are the children of God joined to Jesus Christ and confessors of this true religion, and it should predominate your identity. You are joined to Jesus Christ, joined to one another in Christ, and you gather together each Lord day to worship him, and this is primary. Now, I'll tell you about a a weakness that exists to which we are all susceptible. There are numbers of parachurch organizations. One really fine example is the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I came here to give uh, four lectures for that and am thrilled to do it because there are men and women who are standing up and confessing these great truths of the Reformation and committed to creedal and confessional orthodoxy and are particularists, not universalists, not sacerdotalists. But I want to tell you what can happen if you're not careful. You can begin to define your identity in terms of parachurch organizations that in one way or another decenter your identity as a member of the body of Christ and as a member of a particular congregation. Parachurch organizations exist to serve Christ and his church. And so when we think about Warfield's point, what he should do, what this taxonomy should do, is this should strengthen your conviction regarding the truth of God's supernatural, free, sovereign, and unconditional grace in Jesus Christ, and it should strengthen your resolve to serve the church that proclaims it. And this church is one of those churches, and it should be centered. Now, what Warfield's book does then is it accomplishes something that's quite remarkable. It, you, I don't know if you've seen yet how slim the volume is. You now know almost the whole book. I've given you just about the whole thing. 
And you can read it and say, oh, I know where this is going, right? That, that's kind of the value of the Sunday school. But in such a short compass, he's opened up a world of theology to you that apart from Karl Barth, he's a real universalist. Karl Barth, um, B, A, D, exclamation mark. He's a true universalist. He believes everyone is saved in Jesus Christ eventually. That's like universalism of a higher order, and it's super dangerous. But apart from some of those strange modern developments that, that you don't necessarily have to know a lot about, Warfield's book gives you a concise, system-oriented overview of all of the options in the history of Christendom. It's quite amazing that he did this in 120 pages or so. And and what that helps you do, um, Phil said this earlier, it, it lets you see around almost every corner that you're going to encounter in the church. Everyone you meet is either going to be a naturalist or a supernaturalist, a sacerdotalist. There's a sacerdotalism of the Eastern Orthodox variety you don't have to worry as much about as the Roman Catholic, but they're sacerdotal. Then there are Protestants, then there are Universalists, and there are particulars, particularists. And what this will help you do, and um, and I'll give a testimony in this. Once you understand this, it will change the way that you deal with people who don't know Christ and brothers and sisters who are not yet particularists. And I, I want to share this with you just as a piece of personal testimony. I became a Calvinist about six months after I was converted. I was reading a lot. And it dawned on me that I had been an Arminian and that was not good. I wasn't glorifying the Lord. And I wound up going to Southwestern Oklahoma State University, in case you didn't know that. And I was the student manager, uh, the student manager, I was the, uh, man, the, uh, manager for the student union building and would close it every night. And I would sit, I would do my work for my English degree, like from, you know, six in the morning till about whenever class was over. The rest of the day was theology. So I'd be reading Warfield, uh, The Plan of Salvation, Burkhoff, and all this. All the students started realizing, hey, this guy's a Calvinist. So tons of students would come by. And they'd say, hey, I want to talk to you about that, that Calvinism. And I'd go, hey, let's do it. And we'd talk. And I remember um, talking in a way to one student. We went to Romans 9. And I had presented it so, so robotically that he said, okay, I know, I just realized I can't refute you. I know you're right. But he said, I don't want to worship a God like that and contemplated walking away from the Christian faith. And I realized when he'd done that, that of course the offense is in the text. But I could have done a much more pastoral and loving job in presenting the doctrine of grace in unconditional election to him. And when it dawned on me that God had loved me unconditionally and elected me unconditionally, I started realizing that the, the main concern that we ought to have for brothers and sisters who don't know the sovereignty of God is not 
First and foremost, their doctrinal purity and precision. But we should be concerned about their worship. I don't know if that distinction in the short time I've got left is going to come through, but I was geared, you can probably still tell it, I'm geared toward that precision thing. And that can make people extremely uncomfortable if you've got an overwhelming mass of irrefutable evidence for a doctrine and they don't know what's hitting them. They can start thinking, you're just a weirdo, or do you just sit around and think about this all the time? What's wrong with you? And they, and they get weirded out by it. But if you, if your goal from the outset is to say something like this, so if this is the ballpark of your disposition, to say, I want you to know that the God who loves me does not love me on the basis of a merit system, does not judge me on the basis of my performance, but loves me in the perfect obedience and death and resurrection of my Savior and substitute, and I am just given over to worshiping and serving him out of gratitude and a broken heart. That's better, isn't it? That, that's, that gets to the heart of the worship that underlies and is expressed in this doctrine. And so my pastoral plea with you is as you meet with people and talk with people, Warfield's kind of like Yoda's lightsaber. It's really hard to handle in terms of these other views out there. Don't think of yourself, per se, as a Jedi knight slashing down various permutations of Scythian theology. Think of yourself as someone longing to see brothers and sisters come humbly before the Lord and worship him in large part due to his unconditional love and election of you in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world because that produces true piety and true worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and ask that you would continue to build us up as we move now to worship you in spirit and truth as your church. Build us up and continue to give us our inheritance among those who are being sanctified and make us those who are so grateful for the sovereign grace that is ours in Jesus Christ and strengthen our souls in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.